The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Controlling the Urgency Emergency, Restoring QOL, Safe and Effective Management of Overactive Bladder. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash GZM860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. David Staskin. I'm an associate professor of surgery and urology at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to this educational activity on the diagnosis and management of overactive bladder. An overactive bladder falls under the umbrella of lower urinary tract symptoms, and the hallmark symptom is certainly urinary urgency, the compelling desire to pass urine, which is difficult to defer. This is usually accompanied by frequency and nocturia, voiding at night, with or without urgency urinary incontinence. In population-based studies, prevalence estimates go from 9 to 43% in women and 7 to 27% in men. The most interesting thing about this is there are OAB symptoms, urgency, frequency, getting up at night with or without urinary loss in both male and female patients. And again, those numbers that I gave you vary depending on the methodology of the study. Nearly one quarter, 23% of adults over 40 report bothersome symptoms and more than half of women aged 40 to 45 years and more than 85% of women aged 70 to 75 years report symptoms of OAB. What are the burdens? Well, these might be intuitive, sort of obvious. Obviously, patients' self-esteem, sexuality, personal relationships, and sense of health are affected. And this is seen in quality of life metrics that are applied to patients with overactive bladder. Most of these have been done in studies using overactive bladder medication before and after. Certainly increased levels of anxiety, depression, and disruption of sleep. Almost 40% of women with OAB report that it interferes with daily activities. 12% stay at home due to symptoms. And 38% report decreased physical activity. And many attribute their weight gain to their inability to exercise. Certainly falls and fractures in the elderly are concerned, especially with voiding at night. OAB and other related expenses have been reported to reach $82.6 billion in 2022. These are both direct and non-direct medical costs. Now, to get a personal perspective on the burdens associated with the condition, let's hear from a patient who will tell us about her OAB experiences. My name is Meg Swant. I, um, have, I'm a retired elementary school teacher, and I've been experiencing overactive bladder symptoms for many, many years, and of course, teaching is not exactly the um, the career that one with an overactive bladder really wants to participate in because you don't get to go to the bathroom whenever you feel like it. <laughs> so, but but I survived, and I retired, and I'm still struggling with overactive bladder. There's nothing more embarrassing than being in public and having your bladder let loose in a spasm and there's absolutely not one thing you can do to stop it. And, you know, it's just, just too embarrassing. Because you always wonder whether there's a smell that follows you around that people can detect that's what you've done. Um, 
I would say I was um, in my mid to late 40s when the urge became an issue. Okay, I did um, use poise and depends for quite a while um, in the beginning of when I was trying to keep myself drier. But they were very, very expensive. And I couldn't do a lot of things I wanted to do. And I didn't want to go swimming anymore. I was extremely nervous if I was to fly anywhere on a plane because the bathrooms are tiny. And and if I lose control in there, you know, it's, it's a bigger mess than anywhere else. Um, um, I didn't go on hikes or bike rides because I I needed to know where a bathroom was. To other women that are experiencing this situation and not well maybe men too, I would not waste any time discussing the the, the problems with a physician and to see if you can get some help because as in my case it just got progressively worse and You know, I've done all the little steps that they say, do the exercises, watch what you eat and drink, and when you drink. So I would continue doing all those things, but I would also, you know, discuss it early on with either the gynecologist or the primary physician. For patients and clinicians alike, Certain assumptions about OAB and its symptoms stand in the way of timely diagnosis and effective care. Let's talk about a few key OAB misconceptions. OAB affects women. Men with Lutz-related complaints should be treated for BPH. And this is a common misconception that the frequency, urgency, with or without incontinence seen in women, that when men have the same symptoms, it's due to prostate. I see many men in my office who've been treated for bladder outlet obstruction or an enlarged prostate who have a very reasonable flow and empty their bladder very well and really have OAB symptoms just like female patients. Also, men who have already been treated for their bladder outlet obstruction, either with medication or surgery, may also have persistent, irritative, overactive bladder symptoms. Overall prevalence is comparable in men and women, about 16 to 17%, but men with LUTs are, again, misdiagnosed. The misconception that OAB is a natural, expected, and unavoidable aspect of aging. Now, there are certainly comorbidities and polypharmacy associated with elderly patients that impacts the lower urinary tract. Normal age-related changes can contribute to this, these may be changes with bladder function, urethral function, hormonal changes, nighttime urine production, and urinary tract infection. Polypharmacy is certainly a contributor. Medications that affect cognitive status, executive function for toileting, sedatives which affect mobility or toileting function, diuretics or other comorbidities which affect either urine storage or output, but may certainly affect this. Also, comorbidities which affect peripheral edema or urinary storage affecting the physiology of a patient. Again, peripheral edema, uncontrolled diabetes, and sleep apnea 
all contribute to nighttime urinary frequency, which may or may not be associated with an underlying overactive bladder. And again, when we talk about these disease states, we talk about diseases which affect the way the body handles fluid, type 2 diabetes with nighttime poor control, heart failure with peripheral edema, sleep apnea with increased atrial natriuretic factor, dementia, and ability to void. It's interesting that many of the patients I see, the ability or the desire to toilet still remains although a lot of their other executive functions are affected, but certainly patients with diseases such as stroke, Parkinson's disease, or normal pressure hydrocephalus have both an effect on their ambulation and an effect on their ability to control the bladder due to neurogenic effects intracranially. I am a strong believer as a urologist who specifically treats patients with urinary incontinence that primary care providers are typically not only the initial port of contact, but are able to make this diagnosis. The diagnosis is a syndrome complex. A urinalysis rules out many of the problems within the urinary tract that are significant, such as microscopic hematuria or infection. And those patients who have symptoms of good bladder emptying, but frequency, urgency, getting up at night with or without incontinence can be put into the algorithm of care. What are the indications for specialty care, though, while we're on the subject? Certainly, prior genitourinary surgery or radiation therapy recently. A history of recurrent urinary tract infections, which may need to be evaluated, but certainly the upper tracts can be evaluated prior to referral for stones or other problems. A history of GU trauma or pelvic pain will also sometimes stimulate referral. An abnormality on a physical examination, which would involve either a genital abnormality or pelvic prolapse, certainly prostatic enlargement, and suspicion of a neurologic cause for symptoms, which may actually also trigger a neurologic referral. Laboratory, microscopic or gross hematuria, certainly a reason for referral. Elevated urinary residuals and an elevated prostate-specific antigen. Uncertain diagnosis, persistent symptoms, patient choice, or failure to respond to initial therapy certainly may motivate referral. OEB screening instruments are useful, certainly raising the difficult subject of talking to the patient about urinary incontinence. Many patients will find that they don't mention it due to embarrassment. Many physicians won't ask, and this sort of do not ask, do not tell scenario occurs, I think, throughout all medical specialties. Screening questionnaires, certainly a question, a simple question of, are you having problems with bladder control? Your urinary control is an appropriate first screening question, and many patients will respond to this in the appropriate fashion. There are certainly more involved questionnaires. The red flag symptoms of blood in the urine, difficulty passing urine or pain are sometimes included on these questionnaires. But essentially what we're really interested in are the simple questions. And what these questions are, are you going frequently during daytime hours? Do you have a sudden urge to urinate with little or no warning, which may or may not cause you to actually have an accident on the way to the toilet? Or do you have urinary loss associated with this strong desire to urinate? Patients also may respond to the obstructive symptoms that we talked about involving poor flow and inability to empty the bladder. Again, cough, laugh, 
sneeze, effort complaints or associations with urinary loss are usually stress incontinence and are also a reason for evaluation. The American Urologic Association and the Society for Urodynamics and Female Urology issued guidelines for diagnosis. The original guidelines were issued in 2012. These guidelines were amended in 2019, but the diagnostic guidelines did not significantly change. The minimum requirements for OAB diagnosis, and this is why this can be done in a primary care office, a careful history about storage symptoms and bladder emptying, if when prompted, the patient responds with, yes, I'm having problems, how bothersome are the symptoms, and how interested is the patient interested in care, and again, reviewing the medications and comorbidities of the patient to understand how these may be contributing to alterations in urinary storage or urinary emptying. The physical exam, the abdominal exam, the rectal genitourinary exam, and I like examining patients for peripheral edema because it gives a lot of information about whether this is contributing, especially if they have edema in the mid-morning or early afternoon already before the complete day, that when they're laying in bed, they're mobilizing this fluid. A urinalysis, again, is essential for ruling out UTI and hematuria. The SUFU guideline talks about additional measures. Certainly, if the UA is positive, one might send a culture. I find a post-void residual extremely helpful. This is very important in assessing whether patients are emptying their bladder well. This is sometimes difficult in the primary care setting unless an ultrasound is available. In our office, we have a small scanner which just does bladder volume. If one is going to refer a patient to radiology, sometimes it's just as easy when you are concerned that the patient is not emptying properly to refer them to a urologist who is able to check this for the same type of cost that you might get in radiology. I also find when they fluid load patients in radiology, you really don't get a post-void residual, an accurate one. And I find bladder dyers extremely useful. It's a little bit of a burden on the patient. Sometimes getting a one-day or two-day diary although three is probably preferred, gives you a nice idea of fluid intake, how often the patient is voiding. If I am concerned that the patient has nocturnal polyuria, I will have the patients actually void in large plastic cups or styrofoam cups and place them near the toilet and give me an idea the next day by measuring whether they're having fluid output at night which is greater than 40% of their total output, indicating that they may actually have a more endocrine issue associated with their fluid balance. The initial workup of an uncomplicated patient does not involve urodynamics, cystoscopy, or ultrasound. It may involve checking a residual urine. In complicated or refractory patients, certainly there are additional tests. Let's understand the role of both beta-3 adrenoreceptor agonists and also the more classic anticholinergic medications that have been used for overactive bladder. The first thing, again, is behavioral therapy. Weight loss has been shown to be useful for both urgency incontinence and stress incontinence, although patients won't exercise if they find that they're losing urine. Dietary and fluid management seems obvious to us but patients may not be managing their fluids properly, especially at night before sleep. Smoking cessation, always good and healthy regardless, 
but obviously coughing will contribute to stress incontinence. Bowel regularity being in the autonomic nervous system. Scheduled voiding is usually useful for patients who, when put on a schedule, be able to control their voiding times. And they can also combine this with bladder training and pelvic floor exercises and trying to delay that time until the next void. A lot of these lifestyle and behavior changes will be a patient commitment for effort. I do not believe patients can read a piece of paper and learn how to do pelvic floor exercises. If they're very interested and motivated, they really should exercise officially and properly with someone who teaches pelvic floor exercises. Second line therapy is pharmacotherapy. The anti-muscarinics block the muscarinic receptors, M2 and M3, in the detrusor smooth muscle. There are multiple products available in either oral or transdermal formulations, and these have been classically used. Many of them are once-a-day long-acting formulations. Anti-muscarinics block muscarinic receptors. Beta-3 agonists stimulate relaxation of the detrusor by stimulating adrenergic receptors in the dome during urinary storage. Before we get further into the medical treatment options we have for OAB, let's hear again from our patient who will tell us about her treatment experiences. I didn't bring it up to the doctor because it was embarrassing to talk about. didn't want to admit that I was having that type of a problem. There are some doctors that listen very, very well to what patients are saying to them. I've been fortunate to have some of those, but I've also been around doctors who've decided that when I start describing a symptom, that they go right back to their textbook learning and decide right off the bat what the problem is without really listening to what I'm saying. And an example of that is um, many times doctors attribute a lot of my problems to the fact that I have diabetes and I have my diabetes under very good control. So I don't want them to just jump to that conclusion that that's what's causing my issues. I want them to really listen to all of what I'm saying. I'm having the same types of symptoms again where I cannot control my urine at all. I've done all the little exercises. I've tried almost standing on my head to stop it from flowing, and I can't. It's been very frustrating. Yes, behavioral and diet uh, suggestions were part of the initial diagnosis. You know, watch how much caffeine, watch when I drink. Um, make sure I do the Kegel exercises, and so that's where we started. I was eventually put on oxybutynin, um, I believe back in about 2005, and I you know, dealt with that, and it seemed to work pretty much for a while until it, again, it, it just got to the point where I I had to go to the bathroom every other minute, it seemed like. Um, and again, the control was, was gone. So then, then we, we discussed that and was, I was asked to take a, another um, medication. I didn't have any side effects that I can recall. It just was ineffective and, and my incontinence got much more severe. 
I'm to the point these days of approaching the doctor again with with the fact that now that I'm even though I'm still getting up in the middle of the night a couple of times that when I wake up in the morning my underwear is totally soaked I hope you found that interesting let's get back and look at our medical management of OAB with a quick look at some of the clinically relevant distinctions between the anticholinergic medications that we've used for years and the relatively novel class of beta-3 adrenergic receptor agonists. The anti-muscarinic agonists have certainly been the go-to drug class for overactive bladder. If you've been treating this condition, you're certainly familiar with the multiple agents. Certainly the anti-muscarinic side effects of dry mouth, constipation, blurry vision, and recent concern, which has increased, about cognitive issues, especially anticholinergic load, where the patient may already be on other anti-muscarinics, so that the combination of multiple agents may contribute to cognitive changes. When we consider the limitations of anti-muscarinics, certainly they are contraindicated in gastric retention, untreated narrow angle glaucoma, and supraventricular tachycardia. Adverse events due to peripheral anticholinergic effects are well-known, dry mouth, constipation, tachycardia, and palpitations. We're going to take a closer look at the beta-3 adrenergic receptor agonists, their mechanism of action, and the resulting impact on symptom management. In overactive bladder, increased activation of the parasympathetic nervous system and the heightened stimulation of the M3 receptors on the bladder wall lead to frequent and involuntary contractions of the detrusor muscle, relaxation of the internal urethral sphincter, and the resulting sensation of urgency, the hallmark symptom of OAB. The pharmacologic approach to treatment involves reducing the uncontrolled bladder contractions. The traditional anti-muscarinic agents bind to the M3 muscarinic receptor sites blocking the signals that tell the detrusor muscle to contract. Reducing bladder contractions results in increased bladder capacity and reduced frequency of urination. Antimuscarinic drugs also bind to other receptors in the body, causing side effects such as dry eyes and mouth, dizziness, and constipation. These adverse effects contribute to low rates of treatment adherence. Additionally, long-term use has been associated with increased risk of cognitive impairment and dementia. Drug therapy with the newer beta-3 adrenergic agonists has demonstrated efficacy in treating OAB with few side effects. These drugs target the beta-3 receptors of the detrusor muscle, signaling the bladder muscle to relax and stop contracting, resulting in increased bladder capacity and less of a sense of urgency to void. An association with increased blood pressure and the heart rate has been seen with Mirabegron, but studies have demonstrated a cardiovascular safety profile comparable with that of the anti-muscarinics. Vibegron, the newest beta-3 agonist, was approved by the FDA in December 2020. It is highly selective, has shown no statistically significant or clinically meaningful difference compared with placebo with regard to blood pressure or heart rate, and is not associated with cognitive adverse effects. Let's review the two drugs within the beta-3 class and consider how their similarities and differences may play out in patient care and treatment decisions. Mirabegron, approved in 2012 as the first beta-3 agonist, its safety, efficacy, and tolerability have been demonstrated in multiple trials. 
the drug decreases urinary frequency and urge urinary incontinence with statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvements. It comes in 25 and 50 milligram tablets and is taken once per day with the recommendation to start the patient on 25 milligrams and then advance to 50 if there are no issues specifically with blood pressure. The drug has been associated with elevations in blood pressure. Periodic blood pressure checks are advised and the drug should not be used by patients with severe uncontrolled hypertension, although this would certainly be an intuitive and obvious contraindication with the addition of any medication. The drug is a CYP2D6 inhibitor, and there are some medications that should be used with caution. The most common AEs, hypertension, nasopharyngitis, UTI, and headache. Vibegron, recently approved in 2020, its safety, efficacy, tolerability have also been demonstrated in multiple trials. It does show a significant improvement in frequency and UUI episodes. And in addition, the symptom of urgency, which we discussed later, has been approved for this label the first time for any OAB medication. There have been patient-reported improvements in the quality of life indicators that we would expect. The drug is taken as a 75 milligram tablet once per day. It is crushable. The drug does not cross the blood-brain barrier and has not been associated with cognitive AEs. It does not induce or inhibit CYP2D6 or CYP3A4, so drug-drug interactions are limited. And the most common AEs, headache, UTI, nasopharyngitis, diarrhea, nausea, and upper respiratory infection prevalence of cardiovascular comorbidities, including hypertension, is higher in patients with OAB than in those without OAB. Anticholinergics are associated with QT prolongation and elevated heart rate. Drugs which exhibit beta-3 adrenergic agonist effect may have low degrees of beta-1 adrenergic receptor effect, and this beta-1 is expressed in cardiac tissue raising concerns for off-target cardiovascular effects. Studies done for Vibegron showed very low beta-1 effect. Mirabegron is associated with elevations in heart rate. In the EMPOWER trial, Vibegron demonstrated hypertension rates similar to placebo. Randomized controlled trial of ambulatory blood pressure in Vibegron users. Vibegron was checked in 214 patients who were randomized to 75 milligrams or placebo. Between 30 and 40% of these patients had pre-existing hypertension. No statistically significant clinically relevant effect on blood pressure or heart rate in Vibegron versus placebo was seen in these patients that did ambulatory monitoring. Combination therapy is interesting. Certainly the combination of behavioral plus drug therapy yields additive value over either alone. This has been shown in multiple studies. In addition, combining medications such as antimuscarinics and beta-3 agonists may also provide benefits over monotherapy. This has been shown in the combination of mirabegron and sulafenacin. The AUA and SUFU OEB guidelines mention that clinicians may certainly consider this type of combination therapy in patients who are refractory to monotherapy. And the trial evidence supported improved efficacy of mirbegron and solafenacin over monotherapy with either drug alone 
without significant safety side effects. In the guidelines, specific studies were mentioned. The authors of the guidelines called for further research to evaluate combination therapy with other drug classes and dosing regimens. OAB is a syndrome. As we discussed, urinary urgency is the core symptom. Urgency is seen with frequency, nocturia, nighttime frequency, and with or without urge incontinence. Both men and women are affected, although OAB symptoms in men are frequently mistaken for bladder outlet obstruction. Initial assessment of uncomplicated patients requires only a focused history and physical exam with a urinalysis. Diagnosis and management can take place in primary care settings for most patients. OAV becomes more prevalent with advancing age, so comorbidities and polypharmacy concerns affect treatment decisions. Beta-3 adrenergic receptor agonists, the newest class of OAB medications, have demonstrated efficacy without some of the drawbacks associated with antimuscarinics. There are clinically relevant distinctions between the two agents in this class. That concludes this educational activity. I hope you found it informative and useful to your practice. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash gzm860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Eurovan Sciences Incorporated.